here today with Ryan Shearman, the founder of Ether. Ryan, maybe you can give us a little bit of context before we dive in. One of my favorite things about what we're doing is the elevator pitch is really simple. We are making diamonds out of thin air. And what I mean by that is essentially we are pulling harmful atmospheric carbon down and transforming it into crystalline carbon, otherwise known as diamond. Terrific. One of the things I appreciate about you is that despite not having a background in sustainability, you're doing some of the most innovative work with decarbonization in the consumer product space. What was your tipping point on climate change? The first time I can recall talking about climate change, and and really it was strictly global warming back then, was at a, a carnival in my hometown when I was a little kid and asking my dad about it. And I vividly remember him kind of shrugging it off and telling me that it wasn't something that I had to worry about in my lifetime. It really didn't start to become a real part of my life until 2017. In 2017, we had a bunch of hurricanes that hit the islands, Puerto Rico, Florida, caused widespread damage. For my father and I, I remember tracking it in real time because he's been a sailor as far as I can remember. He jokes that we were down in the BVIs like six times before I was a year old. Loves to sail. Used to have a boat down there. And he saw places that he's known and loved for decades essentially wiped off the map. And that was something that kind of got us talking, he and I. At the same time, a friend of mine from college, his house was leveled in Puerto Rico. Another good friend of mine, his parents moved to Florida and their house was severely damaged. So I was getting on the ground reports of what was happening. A friend of mine had parked his relatively new Harley in a garage in Texas, and that was underwater. So all of these different things were happening that struck close to home. It caused me to pay a little bit more attention to something that I had not been paying attention to. I had been focusing on my career, consumer product development largely in in a couple different markets. At the time, I was running my previous startup, and I knew I couldn't just sit idle anymore. I knew I needed to do something, take my skills and apply it to that problem set and do it in a way where we could really affect change. In its first iteration was organizing something we called the last minute run for charity. It was a really appropriate name because we put it together at the 11th hour. And we organized this virtual charity ride where we got motorcyclists who are using the product that we had built from my last company. And we organized these disparate rides happening all concurrently with the largest concentration here in the greater New York City area, culminated with a weekend of camping. We raised a bunch of money for disaster relief, and I was hooked at that point. I had no idea that motorcycles would actually play into the story. I was just making a joke, but um... (laughs) okay, so. That still doesn't get me anywhere near carbon capture. Sure. I'll tell a little bit of a story that should tell you how I ultimately land in what I'm doing. I had stumbled upon this notion of ikigai. In Japanese, it's your calling, what you're meant to do on this planet. Think of it as a a four-way Venn diagram, right? If you can find something that fits into these four categories, then that is something you should spend your life doing. Those categories are what you're good at. What do you enjoy doing? Those two things are not always the same thing. What can you get paid to do? And what does the world need more of? After my previous company was acquired, I was sitting there wrestling with what's next. Found out about this idea of how I could essentially run a calculation to determine what my calling was. As an engineer, that was something that appealed to kind of my base instincts. And I started feeling it out. I could find a ton of things that fit into three of those categories, but I couldn't really find something that fit into the fourth. And I was searching for that. My wife, then girlfriend, maybe fiance, had given me a book called Drawdown. It's kind of an anthology of decarbonization projects that are happening across the world. I started paying more attention to 
tech-enabled climate solutions. Tech is just kind of where I gravitate naturally. And I started learning about direct air capture. At the time, the world's first direct air capture plants were coming online. This was nascent technology that people were excited about. I understood kind of innately the need for decarbonization, not just offsetting future emissions, but pulling down legacy carbon. And when you really look at the math, this was an assumption then, but it's now something that we know for a fact, you need tech-enabled climate solutions to augment natural climate solutions in order to make sure that we can limit warming to one and a half, two degrees C. So I started paying a little bit more attention to direct air capture, and that's where we kind of had this aha moment. My now co-founder, Dan, and I, all of a sudden, I found something that fit into those four categories. Taking my engineering and materials background with a lot of what I'd focused on that was consumer-driven and applying that all to this problem in a way that enabled us to leverage each of those pieces of professional background that I had built up over a decade I have time spent in the jewelry industry. I have time spent in materials. I had time building a direct-to-consumer brand. So I said, is there any way we can mix those things to come up with something that allows us to drive this outsized impact on decarbonization? And what could that look like? When you think about it, diamonds are one of the most enduring and valuable forms of carbon on the planet. We started to kind of develop this thesis that there must be an opportunity, a chemistry we could take advantage of to transform CO2 into just crystalline C. And because diamonds are so valuable, that might open the opportunity for us to use it as a funnel and bring cash into decarbonization and bring a sexy story, everyone loves diamonds, into the world of decarbonization and hook consumers. What's often overlooked in the climate conversations I'm a part of is consumer participation for a few reasons. We know that the vast majority of emissions are not falling on the shoulders of consumers. It's the large oil and gas companies transportation sector. We know where carbon is coming from. And I am a firm believer that we can drive demand bottom up for change. And that has to sit alongside regulation. I mean, we need government to play a role in decarbonization. But I do think that consumers, if we can get them involved in a really, really profound way, that can drive change. So ultimately, that's kind of where we landed. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in change that's driven by movement towards, not guilt and moving away. And I think the story that you're telling is part of that process of saying, how do we engage? We need regulation. We need accountability. We also need consumers to understand how they can engage with change. Can you talk about how much carbon actually goes into a diamond and what the impact of that translates to? At a very base level, a diamond is only carbon. So if we're talking about one carat of diamond, it's one carat of carbon. That's a fifth of a gram. If we talk about what goes into that gemstone in particular, roughly 75% of the diamond's mass is lost in the cutting and polishing process. So if we start with a five gram piece of rough, we'll, we'll end up with something around one or maybe a little larger than one carat. That's the direct linear path for those carbon atoms. But that's not where our impact is limited. Our impact on the environment for what we're doing comes from a couple different places, right? One is the amount of carbon that is turned into rough diamond. We have that. Then we also have the fact that we're offsetting the need for a, a different, dirtier diamond that would otherwise enter the market. This is a really interesting element about this market in particular. The demand-supply relationship is so tight in diamonds, in the jewelry industry, that we have a high degree of confidence that for every stone that we're going to be putting into the market, the big mining companies, the Alroses and De Beers of the world, that's one less diamond that they're going to be able to sell. Then there's this natural offsetting that we have to talk about. And then beyond that, the products we're selling are high-value, high-margin goods. I think one of the big things we get to contribute to the climate fight is dollars. And that's where I get excited. 
We have this notion of a fair carbon price, probably at least $25 per ton. Although I can go and get offsets for as little as a dollar if I'm buying them in bulk. So, you know, how do you value what one ton of CO2 is worth and how do you really account for that? And then there's the opportunity to talk about offsetting future emissions versus actually drawing down carbon from the atmosphere. So there's all these different elements that kind of come into understanding how we get to our net impact. We have set a goal as a company to make sure that we are pulling at least 20 metric tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere for every single carat of diamond we sell. What's really interesting when we talk about consumers is that outsized impact I mentioned, your footprint as a consumer here in America. Do you know what that might be on an annual basis? I couldn't tell you. I would venture that 99.9% .9 of people could not tell me that either. It's roughly 16 metric tons per year. If you wanted to go and offset the next 10 years of your life, you could work with someone who's doing carbon sequestration and buy 160 tons of CO2. And then the next 10 years of your life have been offset. If we all did that, that'd be pretty material. Probably not going to happen. Now, the reason it's not going to happen is probably costly. And how do you go about doing it? You got to spend some time researching. There's all this friction involved. We wanted to empower consumers by allowing them to go and have that outsized impact without introducing friction. If you buy from our brand for something you are already going to do, we're not changing your consumption habits. We're just changing the brand that you're buying from. For that one carat, or say even a two carat diamond ring you buy from us, we're going to pull down then 40 metric tons of CO2. That's two and a half years worth of carbon in your personal carbon budget. So now this is something that becomes easy for consumers to do. And by doing that, we're just putting pressure on the industry at large. They say it takes pressure to make a diamond. Ours are made in a vacuum. So that is not necessarily true in this case. But what is true is we are putting pressure upward into the industry by operating with radical transparency, by talking about this and trying to standardize things that we think the industry needs to adopt across the board. And if we could do that, if every carat of diamond sold in the world had a 20 metric ton offset effect, it would, the industry would be responsible for drawing down three gigatons of carbon per year. That's, I think, almost 10% of our annual emissions. I think it's roughly 40 metric tons as of right now, 40 uh, metric gigatons. That's a serious impact. If we could get every single diamond in the world sold to take down 20 metric tons, will that happen? Not just because of us, at least in terms of our direct production, but if we can start to create some type of snowball effect and inspire other companies by creating that consumer demand, that's how we can drive real change. What initially caught my attention with what you're doing is that it's an active decarbonization, which is very different than many of the socially conscious or sustainably marketed products out there. Diamonds are one of the products that have a reputation for being dirty. Could you contrast what you're doing with where the industry's at right now in terms of both the environmental and social impact of the product? Sure. Historically, with mine diamonds, you have significant cost to pull the diamonds up from the ground operationally and environmentally. You're digging these giant strip mines that are pockmarks in the surface of the earth that can be seen from space. They're so large. There are strip mines that you can't fly across because they're so deep and so wide that with small airplanes, it creates a pressure drop and you actually have had planes crash. Think about that. <laughs> Beyond that, there are a ton of different secondary effects. Acid mine runoff is one challenge, right? You have all of these different minerals that are pulled up from underground. Rainwater mixes with them. It runs off and creates this acid mine runoff that destroys local ecologies. And then there's the human rights concerns. And everyone who's seen the movie Blood Diamond understands a little bit more about what that entails. The industry's taken steps to better the way we produce diamonds. And there has been improvement. I'd be sitting here lying to you if I said there hasn't been. The Kimberly process was put in place 
to prevent conflict diamonds from entering the market, it doesn't catch 100% of conflict diamonds. It also doesn't label bad diamonds that should not be entering the market as conflict diamonds. If we're not openly engaged in a state of civil unrest in our particular country where we're producing diamonds, they may not qualify as conflict diamonds, even though in the spirit of what a conflict diamond is, they really are. Beyond that, child labor is a factor to consider. There are a slew of different challenges that you know, me as a consumer, I've struggled with. Before I did this, I worked in the industry and I sold diamonds. The gravity of that reality didn't hit me until we started working on this project. The industry likes to say, oh, well, we stopped the vast majority of conflict diamonds from entering the market. It's still tens of tons of diamonds. Think of garbage trucks full of diamonds entering the market. These are illicit diamonds that should not be there. Take it a step further into where we are today. And there's another massive improvement, a step in the right direction, and that's the introduction of lab-grown diamonds. What we produce is a lab-grown diamond. It's just a little bit different in one key way. Lab-grown diamonds that are produced today, they still need to source their carbon from somewhere, and they're getting it from fossil fuels. You can't make a lab-grown diamond today without oil drilling or fracking. How can you consider yourself sustainable if you rely on those activities? So you get a lot of greenwashing. You get a lot of brands who come out and say, oh, we're sustainable. We're producing these diamonds and we offset our operational carbon footprint by spending $10,000 a year on carbon offsets. And to me, there's just a huge level of audacity with doing such a thing, making such a claim. If you are reliant on the fossil fuel industry, you are at a fundamental level, not sustainable. Take it a step further. And we talk about offsetting operational footprint. We're doing that right now. We have to. That's something that sits alongside what we're doing on the manufacturing side. I'm going to take flights for business trips. We have partners internationally that I have to be in the room with. Right now, at present, we offset our operational footprint working with natural climate solutions in conjunction with our own tech-enabled climate solution. So working with natural capital partners to source high-quality vetted carbon offset programs. Right now, we are funding afforestation efforts in South America, for instance, protecting the Amazon from deforestation. And you have to do that in a way that is vetted. Otherwise, there are a ton of challenges with the legitimacy of those offsets. And this has been a big focus for many people in the sector for a while now. And, and there are some really great advancements happening. I'll give a quick shout out to Pachama. What they're doing in that space is phenomenal. We know a bunch of the folks over at Pachama and actually intend to work with them very soon. Got to give hats off to them, as well as folks over at Nori with their regenerative farming efforts. And and I think that's something that makes us feel great because we know we are working to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. It's not just about getting a, a free pass to emit through offsetting other people's future emissions. It's a heavily contested and debated topic. But what I will say is for Ether in particular, we want to make sure that everything we do is out in the open for consumers to see, for consumers to understand. The diamond industry at large has been designed to obfuscate. It's been designed to be challenging to navigate. In a sense, that's what gives us a bit of a moat. If we didn't have the backgrounds working in this industry, I don't think we could do what we're doing effectively. So for a new entrant who wanted to do something like this and without that background, maybe it'd be harder for them to do it. And that maybe benefits us from a commercial perspective, which I'll take any day of the week because I trust myself to do the right thing over a stranger. In fact, that's partly why I'm doing this. When we started out to kind of address this, we talked to everyone in the industry hey, we want to make diamonds from atmospheric CO2. Everyone said, that's crazy. You can't do that. <laughs> we thought for sure, no, someone must be working on this. And we couldn't find anyone who was doing it. Where was the technology when you first started working on this? 
There's three tech stacks that exist that need to work in unison in order to do this. You have direct air capture, pulling carbon out of the air. Then on the other end, you have growing diamonds in a laboratory. Those are each fairly mature technologies. One has commercial viability. One is starting to figure it out and find its way in the world. We needed to bridge that gap. That was the area where we focused. We said, all right, let's essentially take this atmospheric CO2, purify it, manipulate it, bend those carbon atoms to our will and make it sufficient as a feedstock for a chemical vapor deposition reactor so that we can go and make diamonds out of it. And we had to do a lot of that. Climeworks, I think their first direct air capture plant had just come online, I want to say in late 2017, it might've been 2018. So it was right around the time we were formulating this concept. And we were able to go out and reach out to a lot of the established players in the direct air capture space. And I think because of the sexiness and the unique narrative that we were kind of pitching them, we were able to get a lot of conversations started. And that enabled us to go out and leverage partnerships to move the ball quickly. We went from concept to shipping product in under three years. Those were three years of late nights, a lot of hard work, a lot of complex engineering. The technical challenges are not insurmountable, but really, really, really complex. So this is something that required very specialized PhDs who have very narrow areas of speciality and, and they come in and, and build the recipes to take the feedstock that we're making and grow it into a gem grade diamond. This is not something that someone with cursory understanding of the chemistry can just do. And even today, now that we've got it working, scaling it is also going to be a challenge. People ask me like, oh, what if you flood the market with your diamonds? I'm not worried about that at all. I mean, over the next 20 years, half of the global production of diamonds from the ground is going to disappear. Diamond mines are closing. When you start a new mine, you know what the shelf life is. So 70% of all mines that operate on planet Earth today are going to dry up by 2040. If demand is growing year after year and supply is dropping precipitously, surely the industry needs to backfill. Man-made diamonds are the only way we're going to be able to backfill. But even with a combined global effort of everyone who's making lab-grown diamonds today, we, we can't make them fast enough to fill the gap. We kicked off the first phase of production in September. We launched our brand on December 21st. Initial reception by the press and by consumers has been fantastic. Extremely conservatively, if you were to extrapolate and scale that over a year, I think we'll do five or $6 million this year, Yeah, which is a great trajectory to be on. First of all, I absolutely love the name, the branding, the feel that you've built around this. Lab-grown diamonds have come with a stigma. You're getting, from what I can tell, an opposite reaction. Is that the case? And what do you think is behind that? Emphatically. We thought that we might be able to take that entire paradigm and flip it on its head. The mining companies, especially over the last like four or five years, have really been trying to demonize lab-grown and make them devalued in terms of how consumers perceive them, which then impacts what you can sell them for on the open market. And we understood that there is no romanticism with a lab-grown diamond. With a mine diamond, you can tell a story. Oh, they were forged in the Earth's crust billions of years ago, and they're extremely rare and this and that. They are rare. And there are people who out there who think diamonds aren't rare. There are these stockpiles all over the world. There's a lot of mythology around diamonds that's simply not true or was true and no longer is. But as diamond mining reduces in its output, diamonds are going to become more and more rare. Diamonds from the ground, that is. Lab-grown diamonds don't really do anything to address that story. They are highly commoditized. People are trying to pump them out as fast as they can, trying, maybe not executing. Their production is generally associated with a ton of pollution. For the most part, they're coming from parts of Asia where maybe there isn't the right level of transparency or accountability and clean power. Energy use is one of the big drivers or cost of goods, I should say, for a lab-grown diamond. 
we get to say, all right, we understand why up until now, man-made was not a good thing, but that ends today. Man-made is now a great thing because look at what we can do. We can use technology. We can use this opportunity to grow diamonds in a lab to go and do something that is going to save our planet. We're not the only actor in the space, but what we're doing, how we're doing it and how we're going about it, you know, it gives us probably more legitimacy than any other brand out there. You're doing two things. One, you're making a really high quality diamond, have very tight standards about what you're producing. You're also, as you look to grow the brand, really focusing in on that story. Could you talk for a moment about how diamonds have been advertised and the mythology that's been built up around them and what you're doing that brings a different lens, but is still a very emotionally driven approach to selling your product? Absolutely. And essentially, diamonds in the way we know it and the way we treat it today, you know, especially with engage rings, that, that's a, a man-made construct entirely. It was invented by a marketer. De Beers gets a lot of credit. I mean, they worked with an outside agency, but they were the client that drove that. And diamonds have become a deep-seated part of human culture. It's not just an American thing. And it was for a while. It was very much an American tradition that has since expanded to Europe, to Asia and, and all parts of the world. And frankly, this is something that up until now has just been driven by blind consumption. I understand that. I totally get why that was the way it was, how it's involved. For us, we understand and respect the storytelling aspect. It's not just diamonds. I mean, that's how the industry operates. When I worked at David Yearman, so much of what we did on the men's line was driven by storytelling and the materials that we used. And we introduced a ton of really cool materials, different composites, alloys, meteorite, you know, you name it. We played around with it. We did some really cool things. And those stories are what get consumers incited. That's what gets you to buy. So I'll tip my hat to the folks that have created this beast that is the diamond market and consumer demand for it. There is a lot of mythology all the way down to how rare diamonds are or all of the different characteristics upon which a diamond is graded. Everything in that was kind of man-made. Fluorescence is a really great example. A very long time ago, fluorescence wasn't really a major factor in grading diamonds. In later and more recent history, and it's really not that recent, but there were times where black lights became really popular. Think about like late 60s, 70s. As black lights became more popular, people started to realize that some diamonds would shine underneath a black light. They would irradiate, give that nice little like bluish hue, mostly blue, but some didn't. And now all of a sudden, that's become a big factor. And people ask me all the time about fluorescence. It's not something that you'll really see in ordinary light, especially indoors. You'll never really notice it. Outdoors, in some conditions, there are some ways where you kind of see it. But you know, generally speaking, there are all these different things that the industry has done to kind of take things out that would otherwise be arbitrary and, and use that to build this framework for how consumers look at diamonds, how diamonds are priced, so on and so forth. We have to lean into that. We have to lean into the storytelling aspect. I mean, what we're doing is telling a great story, but it's a story rooted in truth and technology and something that effectively will drive this positive impact. I talk about all the time, if we do our job right, and if we can scale this business, we will go and have this strong impact. So that story will be followed by real tangible change. That aligns with where consumers are at today. The engagement buying age range starts in the low to mid twenties, goes up to mid to high thirties. And that aligns really well with who's buying diamonds in general. If you look at 2019 data, we don't quite have 2020 data yet, but in 2019, two-thirds of all diamonds sold in the United States were bought by Gen Z and millennials. Young people are the ones who love diamonds and are buying diamonds way more than you know, our parents. And this is really interesting because these are also the first consumers really ever who are seeking brands that have value alignment, seeking brands that are looking to do the right thing and, and vote with their dollars in a way previous generations haven't. 
I think what's special about our story is it has the opportunity to open the market up by pulling in consumers who otherwise would have never purchased a diamond. And I will not say that that was something we thought about ahead of time. That was something that we've learned since launching. We had and have continued to get messages from people who say, I would have never purchased a diamond. And then I heard about what you guys are doing and I need to buy a diamond from you. And the fact that it can kind of inspire that shift in thinking for people tells me that we're doing something right. And it excites me. Yeah. You previously alluded to putting pressure on the industry. And I think part of that is by telling a story that is far more rooted in shared values with your consumer than anything you can come up with in an advertising agency without the truth behind it. You're also looking at ways to partner with the industry. Outside of your consumer-facing products, how do you look to engage with partners and with some of the larger companies? I'm sure there are entrenched players who are keeping a close eye on what we're doing. I don't feel like I have a target on my back, but I think at the same time, we can drive change first by launching direct-to-consumer, mostly because you want to control the narrative. If you were to launch with several B2B customers, if I was going to sell to a couple different brands out of the gate, I'd get a couple different stories and it would be confusing for consumers. And this isn't really a complex thing to understand, but we do want to drill down, distill it to its basic points, communicate that to consumers in a way that can be digested and told. This is something that happens every time a girl gets engaged or a guy gets engaged and they're showing off their ring to their friends. They're telling about where it came from. They're telling about how they were proposed to, so on and so forth. The thing about what we're doing is there's a really cool and easy story for them to tell in that moment. And so they're showing off their beautifully designed ether engagement ring, and they get to say, this is a two carat ring. It offset it all in, all told, 40 metric tons of CO2. So the next two and a half years of my life has now just been offset. That takes five seconds to say, and it, it lands with people, especially when it's someone who a group of friends may know to be you know, particularly environmentally conscious. I don't think what we're doing is solely for eco-warriors. I don't. That's one of the beautiful things about you know, where we are today and the different trends we're seeing, all these different consumer tailwinds that we can kind of lean into. But we do really change the industry by catering to the large heritage brands. Up until now, the high-end luxury segment of the jewelry market has not touched man-made diamonds. They wouldn't. There's no romanticism, no story there. There's a misalignment in consumer perception. We get to tell a story that is high-end and is luxury and and we've had a number of these heritage brands reach out to us, which is really exciting. Frankly, I don't have enough production capacity to cater to them right now. So our goal is to really own what we're doing from a D2C perspective, build up as much brand equity and, and cachet in the world as we can. And all the while in the background, ramp up production as fast as we can. We, we want to build a mega facility. Think of what Tesla's done for automobiles. Think of their gigafactory. We want to have our equivalent where we will be doing everything from on-site power generation all the way through to setting the final cut and polish stones into jewelry and then shipping to consumers. So vertical integration is a big thing for us because it allows us to have a much tighter level of control over any and all emissions that are associated with what we're doing, any waste that would be associated with what we're doing. The downstream benefit is then when we are supplying to these big brands, we know that that supply chain, which we control entirely, is responsible and is doing everything it can to serve the biggest stakeholder here, the planet Earth. If we talk a little bit about what drives decisions for big brands, what drives decisions for big companies in general, oftentimes it's shareholder value, protecting shareholder value. You are beholden to your shareholders as a corporation. We are a public benefit corporation. We are beholden to our shareholders, but it's written into our articles of incorporation, our stated mission to advance global decarbonization efforts through the manufacture of carbon negative consumer goods and industrial raw materials and 
we get excited because being able to work with the industry to make this a much wider spread source of stones, that's going to help drive mass adoption. And that's where we're going to start to see the net impact really skyrocket. And then on the back end of that, uh, going beyond just diamonds for consumers, for jewelry, and taking the tech that we've built and spinning it out and being able to create other carbon negative materials. I remember the first time with Laszlo, we got a t-shirt sample and it was an absolute disaster. How did your first diamond go? What was that moment like for you? The first diamonds we actually ever grew weren't all that great. Tons of inclusions and stuff. I mean, listen, it's an ongoing development process. So that was to be expected. In fact, I would actually say, even though they weren't perfect gem grade, they were way better than anticipated. It was probably the closest thing. My wife is going to kill me if she hears this. It's probably the closest thing that I've felt to holding my son for the first time. It's just a sense of overwhelming magic. I have one of our first ever samples sitting literally four feet away from where I'm sitting right now, got its own little shrine. And I will never forget the feeling that I had when I held a handful of diamonds made from thin air. The overwhelming sense of like, one accomplishment, right? We'd been working tirelessly for such a long time. I can't take all of the credit for this. We have a fantastic team of people. The brain trust associated with Ether is really the thing that I'm most excited about and most impressed we've been able to kind of put together and credit goes to the team. But I was the first to actually hold it in my hand. And it just occurred to me, what we've been hoping to achieve is real. And here is where it gets fun. And here is where we can really turn it into something and mold it as it grows. Not dissimilar to my son, <laughs> right? My little boy turned five months last week. And I would say that emphatically the happiest day of my life was when he came into the world and the best moments day to day, week to week are with him and with my wife. If you distilled it down and just took a little eyedropper and pulled out some of that magic, that's kind of how the diamonds felt. I don't want to understate the joy that either of those two things have brought me in the world, but both happened in 2020, coincidentally. And, and that's why I tell people for all that it was, 2020 was a challenging year for humanity. Uh, it was a really hard year for a lot of people that are near and dear to me. But I got to bring both of my babies into the world in 2020. And for that, and for me in my own journey, is something that I'll never forget. As you think about the historical supply chain of diamonds, you touched on the human rights and the environmental issues, but there's also a significant layer of colonialism. And if you look at countries that have been resource rich, there's this concept called the resource curse, where places that have natural resources often end up with autocratic or totalitarian regimes that are able to use those resources to fund their regimes without any accountability from the people because they don't rely on the people for anything. You're not solving that. That's not your key mission, but it's really a step towards not just climate, but towards a world that requires people to have more transparency across the board. I think that's really exciting if you look at how an industry changes it starts with those first people that are able to create something that in this case came out of thin air. And hopefully the impact of that grows in ways far beyond just the product and the direct carbon capture. I mean, just think about how much value has been extracted from the African continent by the diamond trade. Frankly, if anyone's trying to get into the trade, one of the first things that I do is like study the background, study the history, know what has influenced everything that is at play today. And only once you've done that, can you start to understand the importance of transparency, the importance of quote unquote, doing the right thing? One of the key parts of our mission at Ether is economic injection in areas that have been historically impacted by the trade. We can make diamonds anywhere in the world. We don't have to go where the kimberlite deposit is. Kimberlite is the geological formation where you find diamonds. 
nothing would stop us from building out a base of operations in Africa to produce diamonds for the African market. This is something we've investigated, something that we're excited about doing at some point, creating jobs, bringing value where it has otherwise been extracted and exported. And that's something that the industry, in line with the Kimberly process and in line with the adoption of lab-grown, the industry has taken some steps to correct previous actions. I just, again, don't think it's been enough. And I don't think it's been fast enough. I think if we can come in and continue to put pressure on the industry at large by doing the right thing so openly, that is also something that will help force decision makers at these companies to take stock of what they're doing, what initiatives they have in play, and can they accelerate it? Can they put more money into it? The amount of cash flow associated with the diamond trade is significant. We're talking about an 80 plus billion dollar global market. There are dollars out there that could be spent better. You and I both have mixed at best feelings about offsets. Maybe you can give us a little bit of context. Yeah, I understand the role that emissions offsets play. I don't personally subscribe to that structure. One of the analogies I've heard is you would never cheat on your partner. I would never cheat on my partner either. But if you pay me to continue not cheating on my partner, you can go and do it willy-nilly. Some people take offense to that analogy. Frankly, it's a little crude and a little rough around the edges. And I get that, but it's one that makes people who didn't really understand it maybe start to understand it. The project that you might be funding, the person you're giving your money to, may have already been planning to do that good thing. And that's why I'm not a big proponent of carbon emissions offsets. Anything that relates to drawdown, sequestration of carbon, that I'm all for. And I really wish we saw more dollars going into that than the former. The word offsets gets thrown around a ton. Carbon credits gets thrown around a ton. And most people really do not understand the difference between something that's an offset against future emissions versus something that relates to sequestration and drawing carbon down from the air. Even if we cut off the vast majority of future emissions, we have still been pumping carbon into our atmosphere at an industrial scale for a century. There is a tremendous amount of legacy carbon that we need to do something about. The challenge that we're facing right now is that we're in this kind of cycle. We've already warmed the planet enough that our ice caps are melting and trapped in the ice is methane. Methane's way more volatile than carbon dioxide. So it's releasing methane, which even if we cut off human emissions, we've got now this natural source of emissions that's venting to the atmosphere. And it becomes this really terrifying snowball effect. I don't know what the opposite of a snowball would be in this capacity because it's certainly not snow. (laughs) We're, We're losing that. I think just to wrap up the offsets and future emissions versus sequestration and to really pull in the dire situation that we're facing around atmospheric levels of greenhouse gases, we don't have any excess carbon that we can afford to put into the atmosphere. We need to be sequestering as much as possible and emitting as little as possible at the same time. And to use sequestration as an excuse to continue to emit is not something that I feel good about. And I think that that's something that is used as justification as saying we're climate neutral or we're investing in offsets. It's one thing to say we are emitting and we want to find a way to do something to mitigate that, which is what you talked about. It's another to say we have enough money to buy as many credits as we need. And so we're not going to change the way we do business. This is part of the greenwashing that we see, not just in jewelry. It's not something that can be overstated the importance of of drawing down carbon. The way I look at it is if 2020 taught me anything, it's that we can drive some really drastic changes really quickly, planet-wide, when we are faced with a really existential challenge or threat. And I just don't think many human beings on planet Earth realize the significance of where we're at 
with respect to our carbon budget. You mentioned that we're burning through our carbon budget terribly fast. If we want to stop or limit the rate at which the planet is warming to kind of contain this before the level of change in the climate is catastrophic, before all of these different challenges present themselves, we need to move quickly. I want a project warp speed for climate. We can absolutely do that. And we have to do that moving forward. So you're entirely right. As much as I was maybe holding back on it before, I'm with you. I don't want to see people use sequestration as an excuse to promote further emissions. I think we need to embrace it. We need to adopt it everywhere we can. Hopefully, we, Ether, can play a small role in that. Well, I'd say you're well on your way. Maybe we'll stop there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck with Ether and looking forward to following you as your company grows and your impact does as well. Thanks. This is a pleasure. Obviously, it's always good to catch up. We've known each other now for probably a couple of years, now that I think about it. 